with that, Rune, the word is yours. Thanks a lot for that. Thanks a lot for that. Let me just, my, my voice goes through right, okay? Yeah. Yes, okay, cool. I'm, I'm just going to take this off so I don't look so much like a computer nerd who's sitting on the other side of the planet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, just one moment. I'm just going to put this one on here. Cool. Uh, yeah, as Oswald uh, was just saying here, well, and by the way, thank you very much for <laughs> inviting me to, to uh, you know, contribute uh, to your, uh, your little workshop here. And um, as uh, Oswald was mentioning, I'm uh, working on recovering uh, Euro traditional animist knowledge by using new animist theory and ontological turn thinking, also uh, inspired by indigenous uh, knowledge scholarship on Euro descendant majority cultural history in order to understand uh, the history of rejecting animist ways of knowing. Uh, and I'm trying to popularize this under the header uh, Nordic animism. And the background for that work is that there is this weird misconception that it is sort of in our culture, but it's also, I, I also think it is in scholarship actually, that your descendants or white people that, um, that we don't really have this culture of uh, an animist knowledge, for instance, or traditional culture that teaches harmoni harmonious coexistence with nature. And if indeed we do have traditional culture, then uh, it is associated either with like new age silliness uh, or indeed with outright fascism. Uh, and these associations of course are themselves instrumental in upholding the ongoing rejection of actual Euro traditional animisms as something that people don't think about or, or uh, uh, take seriously and certainly not as you know legitimate contemporary knowledge base that can be used in a, in a similar way as people are today uh, thinking with and developing indigenous knowledge tradition and um so in spite of the fact that many of us today would think that uh, that indigenous knowledge or traditional knowledge is what i call it when we talk about your descendants is really really important bits uh, when we're talking about solving the gigantic problems that the world have, we seem to be wanting to exclude majority populations from it. Or we, we don't kind of want to think that with majority populations. So uh, that's a little bit what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to do, to think with traditional Euro-animist um, Euro knowledge in order to try to discover less cataclysmically destructive ways of being in the world as a your descendant and uh, ways of creating relation between human communities and uh, the world, right? So yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Um, cool, but what I'll be telling you here uh, specifically now is about the Ragnarok, uh, which is an ancient prophecy associated with actually climate change uh, and uh, <clears throat> and how that myth is recorded on what might possibly be one of the most mind-blowingly enigmatic and weird historic voices of uh, ancient nor Northern Europe. And that is the Röck Stone, which is uh, 
stone, it's a rune stone from Sweden. Around 800 years ago, a man named Varin raised this five-ton granite slab and filled it up with runes to commemorate his dead son, a man called Vamur. And that is the work stone, which is still today found in a location in Sweden that might actually be named after it. Work probably means a monolith of sort. Um, and boy, is that a strange, strange stone, even for runestone standards. Like scholarships have has considered it a riddle. It is the biggest runic inscription that uh, exists and possibly the most enigmatic, which doesn't say a little. Runic uh, inscriptions can be near impossible when there's only one kind of runes being used. But on this one, there are two different runic alphabets and two or perhaps even three different runic cipher codes being used. More than 15 different translations have been proposed and scholars have been eating around and grappling with this thing for the last 150 years, basically. So recently, a group of Swedish, Swedish runologists, they started to have these regular meetings and, uh, and uh, talk about what the flip this means, right? And their suggestion, their suggestion is really interesting. Uh, they read it as in, in the context of Nordic climate eschatology. Um, the idea that the interconnectedness of the world is contingent and can break down, resulting in ecological and social collapse. And I, I, I will be straight with you all and admit that I don't understand quite the depths of what is going on in this analysis because I'm not a runologist and, and this is the most difficult stuff that was ever cuddled on a stone. Um, so, uh, but what they say, what they say is that this uh, inscription, uh, this enigmatic inscription is in fact composed as some sort of a series of questions and statements, almost a bit like riddles and premises or something like that. And they uh, compare it with the ancient uh, texts uh, on the Ragnarok uh, and, uh, and see the Röck stone as, um, as a reflection on this Ragnarok prophecy, um, which, uh, as I'll get back to in a, in a little while, it can be seen or some see it as a memory of uh, climate change. So Barin, well, did I get the wrong place now? So I'm just going to go back here. So Barin basically uh, was trying to inscribe his dead son in this eschatological cosmology, where when you die, you then join the god Odin as an Einherjad, protecting the harmonious world. And this myth that the stone is talking about, Ragnarok, is, I think, a quite amazing example of a Euro-animist rejected knowledge because it is it's, it's a prophecy it's called the, uh, the Volospar, the prophecy of the Völva, uh, which is a kind of um, female shaman and uh, this uh, prophecy talks about the collapse of an, uh, a deeply interconnected cosmos uh, this Norse uh, apocalypse you can call it of the, uh, the, the Ragnarök the story uh, begins, and it, it tells about how everything dissolves in big battle, where uh, where all relations collapse, and everybody just all the forces of the world just fight. It begins with a break on kinship, 
where the god Hother kills his, his brother Baldur. And that fratricide, that break on kinship, compromises the whole interconnectedness of the world, and that sets off this social and ecological collapse. Some scholars believe that, uh, that this myth emerged from the experience of climate change that happened in the mid-sixth century, a couple of centuries earlier, uh, where uh, a volcanic eruption somewhere in Missile America caused global cooling. And this particular global cooling had particularly um, cataclysmic, catastrophic effects in a cold part of the world, Northern Europe, right? And the numbers, they speak very clear numbers. In Sweden, the population decreased with 50%. Norway, some areas became completely depopulated. Archaeology shows a decrease in human activity of 70 to 90% in some, in some areas in this period. So this period that followed after this global cooling that or was this global cooling must have been a horrific experience of violence and collapse in Scandinavia. And this scholar here, Paul Glaeswald, he suggests that uh, this trauma is reflected in the Ragnarok vision, in the Verlusbar prophecy, a vision of social and ecological collapse. The cosmos falls out of joint, endless winter, the world tree burns, human kindness and kinship collapses completely. From this perspective, the Ragnarok is a, you can see it as a mythic reflection on uh, social also um, consequences of climate change that was actually experienced. The poem itself, the Verlusbach, uh, which is part of uh, the collection of poems called the Elder Edda, uh, was possibly composed uh, in the around the court of the Earls of Hladvod in Norway in the 11th century. And that particular setting uh, makes it likely that this specific, uh, specific poem, the Volspar, was comp composed uh, in, a, in, a, in a mythic reflection also on social ruptures that were caused by uh, Christianization and the association with the, the European infrastructure of power that happened at that point. Because this was a con uh, context where there was a, what you could almost call a bit of a last stand of an aristocratic pre-Christian culture that had been before Scandinavia was Christianized, but whose members must have realized that the days of this culture was numbered. It was a time of uh, a rather serious uh, political upheaval in Norway. And uh, it, it, it is a at this point of history, Christianity in Northern Europe had long since reached a kind of social critical mass where it, that made the religion a kind of gatekeeper for Nordic elites to get access to the European infrastructure of power. Um, and at the time, social power was reproduced through these dynastic intermarriages and, and, and stuff like that. And a Frankish ruler in the 11th century would be unlikely to marry uh, a daughter to a, a Scandinavian who uh, was not Christian, for instance. So ruling elites therefore faced the choice of becoming Christians or facing com competitors for power who had already made that choice and thereby augmented their military capacity through relation to Christian rulers. So that's sort of the social political situation where this uh, this uh, poem was likely composed. So we, if, we, when we combine these two uh, suggestions to understand the background, then we could ask 
um, why the cultural memory of this cosmic collapse and environmental uh, breakdown would be formulated in exactly this kind of, of cultural context, 11th century, uh, 11th century Northern Norway. And here's the thing, apocalyptic expressions are in fact rather common when humans experience uh, threatened traditional life form. Uh, millinerism is a cultural reaction that regularly emerged, for instance, in indigenous groups uh, whose traditional lifestyle has been compromised or threatened through, for instance, colonization. And uh, during this period in Scandinavia, uh, sometimes called the, the Viking Age, Scandinavian people actually had experienced a rather strong cocktail of cultural change. They didn't only famously give everybody else a hard time. They, uh, there was also some rather steep cultural changes going on inside Scandinavia. Christian, uh, Christianization, state formation, globalization, that all of a sudden you could travel uh, for, at an enormous expanse of, uh, of the world compared to in previous periods, um, and, uh, and urbanization, state formation uh, is also part of this. So there's a, quite a lot of changes going on there in this, in this period here. And it, it makes a lot of sense that there would have been this millenarian kind of reaction in this sort of, do you say Alamo in American English? of this heathen worldview uh, in, in the location of the, uh, of the Earls of Claudius. Um, millinerisms often envision a world that has gone out of joint. Our traditional life world has broken down, but there will be a return to a better state somehow. Um, the myths of, of, of rupture and uh, sometimes uh, uh, recovery of, of connection is in fact a wider theme in uh, Nordic animist tradition through the ages. Um, there are uh, common cautionary tales about people who mistreat the, some patron spirit of their farm or something like that, and then that will return with, with gruesome revenge, revenge somehow. Uh, in the pre-Christian period, there was uh, these octennial religious festivals where people gathered in, 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 in sacred sites. Uh, and, and I think today that these festivals were in fact uh, healing festivals that addressed a rupture mythologically expressed in a break of kinship because these festivals were predicated on the myth of a king who was killing his own sons in order to live forever. Um, if the ideal is to be a good ancestor, then this is a cautionary tale of the worst imaginable ancestor, a king that's killing his own descendants. Um, in other tales, uh, a human spouse breaks marriage with a sea spirit, uh, for instance, which then turns on human communities that then collapse uh, and madness uh, ensues, right? There's also the another edic lay, the grot, Grotta Songer, uh, where the wealth and fortune of King Frodi's kingdom rests on social contract with giantesses who drives a magic millstone that grinds these blessings uh, in the land. But Frodi, the king, he breaks the contract with these giants of Jotnar, and, in, and then they turn on him and in, invoke uh, war, collapse, and madness uh, on the land. There are stories, many stories of spirits that are literally 
fleeing the land because it has become overpopulated and noisy and all that stuff. However, though this ongoing animist reflection on, uh, through this ongoing animist reflection on rupturing connectedness, the Volospar, the Ragnarok myth, stands supreme, I think, as the most monumental of all cautionary tales and mythic reflections on the uh, consequences of rupture. And it speaks into our age, I think, also with a really uncompromising force uh, and wisdom, uh, which makes it a frightening read. It is all the time being reproduced in all kinds of cultural uh, performances, and 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 it, it's very much a myth that is kind of alive in our in our age right now, and uh, that is I think that is because it, it is a myth that basically talk about climate change. It is a mythic reflection on climate change, and all the trigger warnings that you can possibly imagine should probably go on the spot. You know, this is a vision uh, not only uh, of what some Viking age Norwegians might have seen around them. Be, uh, you know, it talks about collapse, connect, collected, connectedness, and thereby, I think it also gives us a vision about what is happening in our in our world today. Uh, we inhabit a world uh, where disconnection is a, something we see around us in so many different ways. You know. Uh, we live in a reality where the disconnect between humans and nature is such that we are, in fact, rushing towards apocalyptic consequences. We're living in a, in a world where social media algorithms um, locks pure people into these mirror cabinet, cabinets that seem to be promoting our stupidest and most conflictual perception and idiosyncrasies. Hundreds of millions of people just floating into disconnected parallel realities. This is a disconnect. And uh, these addictive media devices, they threaten to disconnect us, even to our loved ones. People are just sucked into these addictive systems all the time. Um, I think even our uh, people's capacity to synthesize information seems to be plummeting. Politicians, for instance, they don't need to make sense anymore, particularly not if they know how to shout attention grabbing, grabbing conflictual stuff, right? Scholar, scholarship is another example. Uh, we produce gigantic amount of, of knowledge, uh, scholars, but it never gets read or becomes relevant for anybody. It's knowledge out of touch with reality. Again, it's a disconnect. Our myth, our mythic structures uh, are increasingly dysfunctional. Narr the narratives that are supposed to bind stuff together, they become uh, disconnected so, so that tens of millions believe in their hearts mythologies such as that Hillary Clinton is leading some cannibal sex, uh, child abuse sex cult. You know, I mean, it's so ideas that are so preposterous that it would be hilarious, hilarious if it wasn't so horrifying. This is a detached myth-making, mythic narratives that are ruptured from reality. Badge management, you could say, of what the Native American scholar Robin Kimmerer calls um, uh, the grammar of animacy. The, 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 the systems of animation that binds stuff together. And that is the train towards Ragnarok, the collapse that ensues from breaking connectedness, those connectedness that bind the world together.
So the, the Ragnarok and the Volospar is real vision somehow. I think it is the realest prophecy of our time, even though it's, you know, a thousand years old. Uh, and it's not for the faint of heart. It's not anti-trauma Reiki healing on a pink pillow that smells of lavender incense. It is the brutal, brutal reality of climate change, a vision of the real state of, 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 of the, uh, our world through the shamanic eye of Viking Volva. And there, therefore it's a wisdom, it, it's part of the wisdom uh, that we have uh, rejected in order to become so destructive. So uh, yeah, I encourage everybody to read the Volus by get ready to get uh, traumatized. Um, I see a fire burning each of the fortress, news of war awakening. That is a beacon, you know, hands shall grip heart shafts, slaughter stained weapons, wake up, wake up for the, you know, the, uh, the Jormungandr, the deep sea dragon rises to devour the earth. You know, flames rise towards the sky as the fire giant Surfu consumes the tree of life. Human kinship and uh, kindness and decency breaks down. Brother will fight brother and be his slayer. Axe age, sword age, shields are cleft asunder. You know, wind age, wolf age, until the world plunges headlong, no man will spare another. You know, it's, it's, it's very powerful, <laughs> very powerful wording. Uh, but I also think that these old stories that look at the connectedness and what connectedness is and try to conceptualize it, that they, there is also hope <laughs> to be found in them. We can reread our old stories, the, story, the stories that define us from an animist perspective. And then they suddenly start telling us some pretty awesome stuff, actually. You know, some tales indicate that there are solutions, you know, a connection can be recovered. In a Norwegian story, um, a young woman has to travel deep into the spirit realm in order to recover uh, the connection with her lost bear spouse. You know? In another tale, uh, uh, the connection with a monstrous man is reinforced as the woman takes this monstrous man through some sort of masochistic bait ch chamber torture, and then she shapes him into a proper enculturated uh, human being that she can marry. Uh, and things, things become right again. In a Danish song, uh, a woman calls uh, on Raven to bring those runes that will call her beloved back across the sea, right? This here is a contemporary uh, eco-activist reinvention of the raven flag, um, the ancient mark of the raven trickster and totem. And uh, yeah, we need that charm. We need those runes that the raven brings to call, uh, call us back into relation. And, um, and uh, these, this knowledge is there in, 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 the, in the heritage of, uh, also in the heritage of uh, majority populations, your descendants it is there. It's about looking at it in, in, in the right way. Um, and the Volospa, in fact, 
the poem also in some note of hope uh, that the, um, the re that a regenerated world will uh, return. So the vulva sees upcoming a second time, earth from the ocean, eternally green, the waterfalls plunge and eagle soars above over the mountain hunting fish. So that's the end of the Verlus bar. And uh, yeah, that was what I had to say. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rina. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, does anyone have any uh, questions uh, or sort of like inputs? Uh, otherwise, uh, I I'll go ahead and post one question for you, Rona. So yeah, um, the way I see it is is really relevant this type of knowledge, but we do also have sort of these cautionary tales already in our culture today, but they're sort of more coming in, in the form of like UN IPCC reports on climate change or uh, really, really sort of like terrible pictures of like um, uh, a polar bear. But so these like, especially these reports have proved again and again that the cautionary tales are not working. And I think that this sort of cautionary tale does have another effect on us. So, but my question is like, uh, which is a really hard question to answer, but as uh, as a designer or a communicator, I'm really interested to, to sort of think like how, how do we take it from this cautionary tale to actually be something that fosters change? Uh, yeah. yeah, what's your thought on that? Um, yeah, first, let me just spin a little end on what you said with the IPCC report, because a new one, as some of you, probably know a new one just recently came out and it was even more uh, catastrophically apocalyptic than all the other ones. We are monumentally fucked as I believe that some uh, honorable scholar in his uh, Nobel Prize uh, suit action formulated it at some huge conference in front of the gathered uh, uh, climate scholarship of the world. Um, and yeah, the problem is that these, these cautionary tales, that mythology, that does not have the proper impact. It, uh, it's not being heard. It's quite simply not being heard. And part of the reason that I think that, that stuff like Volospa has a chance of being heard is that it is millinerism. Millinerism changes stuff a lot. If any of you have seen the... Um, TV series American Gods, uh, where in the first season, there's this wonderful uh, uh, scene where the West African spider trickster, Anansi, uh, uh, goes a, a, into a, in a, in a slave ship and he tells these, these people that anger gets shit done and then they burn down the ship. That is millinerism. Millinerism is the anger that gets the stuff done. And uh, the Volus Bar has millinerism in it. And that means that it's a big, it's a big tool. Uh, it's not necessarily a tool that can be controlled all the way because millinerisms do hectic stuff, but it's a big tool. Question is how to get it, <laughs> get it out there. But, but, uh, and I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, uh, a finished uh, solution. Uh, one vitally 
important aspect of communicating with anything that has any form of any form of interface with Euro traditional knowledge is to be very upfront about anti-racism every single step of the way. Because as soon as you use the word traditional in connection with the Euro-descended culture, then, then there are, Euro-traditional culture has been kind of built, used in the building up of whiteness and all these things. And that's why, that's why a queer Inuit activist can talk uh, talk about themselves as, as traditionalist and nobody will say, oh, okay, so you're probably fascist, you know, but it's, it's, it's why we have to work for it. And that's a task that's just there all the time. Well, that's one thing that has to be completely upfront all the time. The, uh, exactly how it can be merged all the way into, uh, into for instance, climate activism. Um, I, I, I don't have all the, all the solutions for that. I mean, I'm trying a little bit in different ways, partly because animism is not so much about what you understand and what you think inside your and imagine inside your head, but about what you do. So I'm sort of trying to make things and bring them out there. I made like a calendar. That was my first kind of attempt on that. And then I made a flag, that, that, that flag that I also showed in this presentation, which was built actually on a piece of scholarly, scholarly analysis of, of, uh, of uh, totemic tradition. And then I'm kind of trying to introduce that in actual uh, eco-activism. Uh, so that's, that could have an effect of supplying contemporary eco-activism with this historic background that I feel it's sort of missing. Yeah, maybe I should have said that a little bit earlier, that there is a problem in contemporary eco-activism, that it operates only in now and future. And that's not the way humans produce uh, history. Humans produce history by talking about the past in a way that points into the now and projects the future. That it's like, it's so fundamental. But eco-activism, uh, if it is not indigenous eco-activism, has the problem that it doesn't really operate past and and that's uh and i i also don't have <laughs> i also don't have a clear image of what exactly it would mean to like in concrete terms to give contemporary eco actions in such a past but i'm trying i think it would be beneficial <laughs> I, i'm not sure if i am i rambling did i answer your question <laughs> yeah thank you it's a tough question i think uh, I think it's a nice way to leave it that we have, it's a, a lot of challenges, but it's a powerful tool and we need to, to learn how to use it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, like I, I, I became very inspired by uh, a, an original Australian complexity thinker called Tyson Junkerport. He talks about myth making, myth weaving and how myths can attain a quality of right story, uh, but uh, but that requires a uh, that requires a, um, a caution and wisdom in some some uh, fine combination, I think, with playfulness and passion and stuff like that, and. Uh, um, a lot of the mythology that's being uh, that's being narrated, uh, for instance, about European pasts, is not right story. Um, 
TV series, for instance, on, on Vikings and so on, they, in my view, they, they seem to be largely uh, reinventing um, uh, uh, the uh, Vikings as a as an essential whiteness as, a, as an icon of essential whiteness, uh, which is not useful for from from any perspective. Perhaps it's directly destructive from many perspectives to um, to I, uh, fetishize uh, essential whiteness. Cool. Yeah. Uh, if there's not any more questions, I think we actually also need to give it up soon so the next person can prepare for their workshop. I just, uh, are there any questions in the room? I can, it might be easier if I communicate yeah. rather than from the room. I have a quick one. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking off camera, but I'm sitting right right by the laptop. Uh, um, one thing I think that's, that's what struck me as interesting, uh, again, like, thank you so much, Rim, for, for joining us. <laughs> I quite let it night for you as well. Um, but uh, when you were talking earlier about the, um, you know, kind of kind of broken connections, uh, but also you know the, about this this wealth by myth kind of being written around a time of increasing globalization, which I think, you know, in in one way, um, globalization can kind of mean like an increasing abstraction of like a person's connectedness to their, um, you know, place that they live. Uh, I think in a lot of like sort of in industrial settings, like industrialization can be an abstraction of a person from like their food sources or from the like kind of you know sustaining of their life. And I wonder if uh, I don't know is that, is that a connection that you see um, sort of in in these stories or like this yeah I guess abstraction and sort of removal of humanity's relationship to to kind of close surroundings um, in some of the work that you that you do. Sorry, that's sort of a bit of a round. No, it's a super good question, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I think I see a lot of uh, ruptured connection with land. Uh, I see a lot of um, when you look at uh, Euro traditional uh, animisms, you see a lot of land connectedness, a lot of spirit sites and holy trees and sacred rocks and sacred rivers and ancient burial sites and all that kind of stuff there's uh, so much like uh, and, and it's probably everywhere in northern europe uh, or you probably europe as such and there's a lot of disconnection from it and industrialization plays a vital role if you if you uh, look at uh, also you you mentioned uh, industrialization in relation to food sources. If you move a little bit back in time, um, uh, people in Northern Europe would uh, treat uh, stuff like the rye. Uh, they would treat it in a, in a way that's comparable to how Maya in Guatemala uh, treat the maize, basically uh, have uh, built animus relation to this plant uh, in, in very intense ways. And this also goes through uh, livestock animals and so on. Um, whether the Viking Age globalization, which was what I was referring to in the 11th century Norway, whether that uh, emerged uh, in, in these kind of disconnects from place, disconnect from, from land, I think that would be a little bit more difficult to, uh, to point out because this is something that we read about in sagas. 
And you can see sometimes that that uh, people, for instance, when they move from Norway to Iceland, that they would take earth, uh, take earth from a sacred site in Norway, bring it on a ship when they move to Iceland, and then they would place it in in some place where they then build a sacred. So they they're kind of trying to build uh, to to build connection to place in that way, um, and. But but I think it's also it's difficult to it's difficult to move into the headspace of, of of early medieval or Iron Age people where you know all of a sudden they're living in Ireland or something like that and then they start having sacred places in Ireland almost immediately. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm not sure if this this answers your question. If it didn't, then then perhaps. Um, develop it a little bit and I'll try to be more precise. No, no, that, that's great. Thank you. Cool. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. And, and Oswald, I hope you feel, hope you feel better soon. Me too. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much, Rune. Thanks for spending Friday night with us. It's been great. Yeah, super nice. It was super nice. <laughs> and thanks for contacting me and everything. So, and, and, uh, See you around and have a nice, have a nice day, day everybody over there. Thank you very My much. My name is Rune Jane Rasmus. The work that I'm sharing with you on this channel focuses on recovering Euro-traditional animist knowledge. This is the fruit of a life of study and research all over the world. And I hold a doctorate from the oldest university in the Nordic region, but I'm choosing to popularize rather than to focus on academic publication. Conventional institutions, however, have yet to warm up properly to my perspective. So if you appreciate what I do, then please do consider that I also need to feed my family. Uh, for the price of less than one beer per month, you can become a patron supporter, or you can head over to my web shop and enter into exchange relation with me. You can also give single donations to my PayPal account, or if you have contact with someone that might help me project this incredibly important perspective to the world, then do drop me a PM. And uh, remember also to clickety-click and subscribe, follow, share, comment, and all that. Thank you very much.